2: Thank you for tuning into the show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you are listening to the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering questions, questions about the Bible, questions about what we believe as Christians or why. Um, Something may be going on in your life. We'll do the best that we can to get those answers today. You need only to call us 210-340-9585. That's 340 9585. If you're out of the local area, you can call toll free at 877 630 KSLR. Numerically, that's 630 uh, 5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call. Just use the free KSLR mobile app. Um, just hit call now. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Because it's Tuesday, we don't have a bunch going on, so we'll get right to the question. But let me just share this with you. I feel like I'm 400 years old right now. I've explained to you before that we always have a bunch of the kids come in and pray for the radio show. Um, grades from... First grade, uh, um, up to sixth or seventh grade, and um, I was—I I said I'm going to give you a culture lesson here. Let me tell you, if you like these songs, and I played them some songs from when I was growing up. I played an old classic called "Don't Let the Sun Catch You Crying" by Jerry and the Pacemakers. Uh, I was playing Chicago, uh, the band Chicago, and the kids are like. scratching their heads and one of the little girls she said I just don't get old music and I thought that's a beautiful song so here I am today feeling particularly old and I know many of you in my age, uh, age group have experienced that as well okay let's get right to some questions the first one is a question from Anne, and she asks should I attend a friend's gay wedding uh, and I don't believe so. A wedding is a celebration. Um, it's not enough to say, well, my friend knows where I stand, or he knows or she knows I'm a Christian. A wedding is a celebration. And if you go and celebrate something that God um, really, really hates, um, then you're choosing sides. And I just, I think we, we are so tempted to water down our witness and we want to feel like we're loving people. We want to be accepted by people. And I think too often we cross a line where we're no longer taking a stand for Jesus. You know, Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my father. But if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my father in heaven. And um, I-, I think we run perilously close Anne, and things like this. To, to denying Jesus how can we celebrate a friend a friend who's living a lifestyle that guarantees that he or she will spend eternity in hell being tormented how can we celebrate that but I love them Pastor Ron and they're just somebody that I've, I've grown up with or I've known them my whole life it doesn't matter if they're really your friend you want them to go to heaven so I don't see under any circumstances that um, we should attend the Friends Gay Wedding. Now, if you've got gay friends, that's fine. But but if they really know who you are, you're going to be witnessing to them about Jesus. Uh, this isn't a matter of, are you gay or are you straight? This is a matter of, look, I want you to be saved. I want you to be in heaven. And I think if we attend a, a celebration event like a wedding, I think, well, what we've done in that particular case, and is I think we have so compromised our witness that there will no longer be any power now I realize how emotional questions like this can be I also understand um, in most instances how you're going to be spoken about by these so called friends if you don't approve or affirm what they're doing what they say makes them happy but Jesus said in this world people will insult you they will hate you on account of him and I think we just have to be um, able and willing to accept that uh, in, in order to stand for Jesus. I don't know how I would ever explain to Jesus why I went to a, a gay wedding, somebody that I said I cared about uh, and didn't tell him about Jesus. So, uh, And I don't think that we should. Here is a question from Richard. He says we explain the best way to approach family devotions. My teenagers aren't always interested. Richard, you know what? I, I this is something that I only know in theory. And watching uh, some of the other parents in in our church, I was asking my producer about his family devotions, and they just do it around the breakfast table in the mornings. Everybody's involved. All of the kids now, teenagers, and they've got. A, 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 a freshman in college, they've got uh, a junior in high school, um, a seventh grader, and, um, and a sixth grader. Uh, and, and, you know, in the mornings especially, there's all kinds of distractions. But they've just come to accept the fact that there's going to be family devotions. And in this particular case, it's the dad who does it, and mom's there, and he's there. If he can't be there for some reason, then then the mom does it. But every day during the week now, not on weekends, simply because there's lots of other things going on. um, But but everybody knows you're going to be at the table, and we're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to look at the Bible. Now, let me be a little more specific. Uh, The one thing as pastor I suggest to our family is don't just tell Bible stories. Uh, don't ask uh, little kids, what do you think this means? Just read them the Bible and then summarize the story. Teach them at their level. Now, if you've got a big age gap with the kids, and kind of default to reading the Bible and talking to them about what, what the Holy Spirit was saying to them uh, as you read the story. What kind of questions do they have about the story? But, Richard, the most important thing is that they're done consistently. I know a lot of people that say, okay, this year I'm going to do family devotions and they go like crazy for two weeks and then everybody falls back into the same old habits. That is not a a good approach at all. Just do it. Show up. Show up. Now, when you say your teenagers aren't always interested, uh, you need to be really forthright with them. Say, look, I know we haven't done this in the past. Uh, maybe you just got saved. Maybe uh, your, your kid's life is changing because of your relationship now with Christ. Uh, but but you sit down, you have a family meeting and say, okay, this is the way our day is going to start. The kids don't want to. Uh, the kids in your homes don't get a vote. That's important, Richard. Your kids don't get a vote. They are to do what you tell them to do. You're the one that makes the rules. And you just laid the, the, the gauntlet down. This is Jesus' house. And I'm going to stand before God and give account of my stewardship over the gift that that God has given me of you you kids. So we're going to do that. So, Richard, I think that's the best way. Do it systematically. Don't jump around. Don't use um, our daily bread or my utmost for his highest. Um, Read the Bible and expose them. Let the living Word of God, living and active, let the Word of God have a chance to penetrate their hearts. And just explain to them, this is the way it's going to be. You don't have a choice in the matter. And set a time and then be consistent. Believe me, especially with teenagers, if they're not interested, if you're not consistent, they're going to jump at that and you're going to miss the opportunity. So I hope that makes some sense to you, um, Richard. But, But good for you for wanting to do it. And by the way, let me add one other thing, Richard, not just for you, but for everybody. In a Christian home, The husband and the wife ought to be doing the same thing on their own, taking some time to read the Bible to each other and talk about it. I've said this before in this program, but uh, Paula has to read to me. Um, uh, It's been a very, very long time since my eyes were good enough that I could read. Um, Paula reads to me. Um, Today she read, uh, there were short passages, so we read all three studies this week, uh, two or three times each. And, um, you know, in those times, we have the opportunity to talk if there's something that needs to be brought up. Uh, But it's just important we take that time. So I hope that helps. Let's go to the phones and talk with uh, Cindy on line one. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air.
3: Hi, Pastor Ron. Um, This is from last night, Monday's uh, Women's Bible Study, and it was really, really good. Jocelyn taught, and she had all kinds of really nice gems from the Lord. But now this is is where I wondered if you could untangle something for me. In Judges 1, starting on 22, Now the house of Joseph attacked Bethel, and the Lord was with them. When they sent men to spy out Bethel, And then in parentheses it says, formerly called Luz, L-U-Z, I think I'm saying it right, not sure. Uh The spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, show us how to get into the city, and we will see that you are treated well. So he showed them, and they put the city to the sword, but spared the man and his whole family. Now, this is where my question is. He then went to the land of the Hittites, where he built a city and called it Love's, which is its name to this day. Now, what I'm wondering did did he like build a second city called Love's or or what? And I'll get off the phone and and listen online. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much, Cindy. A uh, couple of things. Pollock was um, thrilled when she came on last night. She said Jocelyn did a great job. So, Cindy, thank you for for. Thanks. I've got a cough. Uh, Thank you for acknowledging that. Um, Let me give you an example. Um, When we came over as a nation and landed on the East Coast, um, there was a settlement called New Amsterdam, um, changed later to New York. Uh, That was from the former York in England or the former Amsterdam uh, we've got a city just to the to the east of us or north of us a little bit rather um, New Brunfels uh, it was settled by people from Brunfels Germany this is the New Brunfels that represents a new start so what this man did and remember judge's one is just sort of a summary of of how things got so bad and the detail is going to come chronologically in subsequent chapters uh, but he he just uh, um, went from the city called Luz um, he went to a new place and started it over and he said well I'm going to call it Luz that's my home so that's what he did and when it says that was his name to this day um, uh, that only goes as far as the day of the writing of this book it's certainly there's not a Luz today but uh, that's what he's talking about there. So uh, you guys are in for some great, great Bible studies in the book of Judges. Uh, I've said this before, but to, for me personally, Judges is the most fun book in all of the scriptures to teach uh, because of the, the, the unbelievably rich character studies in, in, in the story. So that's what it was, Cindy. Thank you for calling for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Dallas. Not from the place Dallas, but from a man named Dallas. Pastor, are big churches blessed as opposed to smaller churches uh, who don't seem to grow? Dallas, we, we live in, in a country where bigger is always better. We look at something that's big and we see success. You know, we, we look at Amazon and we just think what a magnificent company. They're going to take over the world. Uh, but remember, the, the things in God's economy are completely different. Uh, there are pastors who teach that God is really blessing their church. It's really growing. Uh, and sometimes that's the case, but not always. A lot of times churches that are really big are big because they have messages that are easy to listen to. Uh, The biggest church in the country is in Houston, Texas, and it's a church that doesn't teach the truth. It's a church that that tickles people's ears, um, tells them things that make them feel good. Uh, and and that's not a church that's blessed. That's a church that's marketed. That's a church that's successful from a worldly point of view, but believe me, it's not a success from the perspective of heaven. So no, big churches aren't blessed as opposed to smaller churches. Now there are some big churches, huge churches, that, that clearly God's blessing rests upon. The truth of the word is being taught. But remember, we live in a in a culture that for the last. Uh, Two or three decades, at least, um, the the uh, the trend has been mega churches and um, seeker sensitive churches. And again, it's easy to build a big church. It really is. There's not a pastor who's um, able to be a, a, an effective communicator who couldn't have a big church um, if if that's what his his goal was. Um, you just have to tell people what they want to hear. Uh, Tell them God wants to be rich and healthy. Tell them that God wants them to live their best life now. Um, Tell them, don't talk to them about sin because that makes them feel bad. So we want them to be comfortable. Um, uh, That's a guaranteed successful way of getting people in the seats. But it is not a way to get people um, or, or to have the blessing of God. On, on those churches or on those people. Now, I want to talk about smaller churches for a moment. You know, the average church in this country is something around 75 to 85 people. That's the average church. If you go into places in the Midwest, if you go to places in North Dakota and South Dakota, if you go to some of the more obscure places in the South or on the East Coast, uh, there aren't large population bases that support any kind of a, of a, a bigger church. Um, Do you think God doesn't love those people just as much as he loves people in big cities that have mega churches? Of course. And in fact, let me say this. uh, We've planted here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, we've planted 29 churches in our not quite 24 years. And a lot of those churches went out into places that are really small. Uh, We sent uh, in the last year uh, somebody to South Anchorage, Alaska. Uh, that's never going to be a big church. Uh, we've sent people to uh, Stockdale, Texas. That's never going to be a big church. But God loves the people, and it's important. And I can tell you that those churches and those pastors and their families have God's blessing. You know, it'd be easy if somebody offered you a job as a pastor. Um, here's a church with 3,000 people in it, so be blessed well, you know, that would be great. But it takes commitment. It takes truly understanding your calling to go to a city that isn't as big as some churches that we are familiar with. And yet those people, God loves them. They need to be taught. They need somebody to love them, somebody to represent Jesus properly to them. So I think some of the smaller churches, Dallas, are are really, really, really blessed. Let me also say this. There's a dynamic in churches, especially smaller churches, um, that often exists where the congregation is sort of anti-growth. They like things the way they are. And those churches often aren't doing outreach. They're not welcoming to visitors. They're not out. The the people in church aren't sharing the gospel um, where they go and in their families and at their places of employment. And they're not doing it because they don't want their church to grow. I like it the way it is. That's really a spirit that's from the enemy. Uh, a church that is alive, a church that has the blessing of God, there's always going to be new people coming in. Now I'm not talking about droves of people. I'm not talking about advertising or marketing, but just by virtue of the fact that people get saved, they get excited, uh, they want to tell the people they really care about, um, what's happened in their lives, and come, let's, let's come to church with me, and you can find Jesus too. Well, those are the churches, no matter the size, that are really, really blessed. I've made two observations about big churches and small churches. Big churches, the first one, I said a lot of times people like to go to big churches because they like to blend in. They can be almost invisible in a huge church. And they don't feel any obligation to serve. They don't feel any obligation to give. They sort of just kind of walk in and fade out, and they're not really involved. Uh, That's a person who really doesn't understand the calling of God. Um, The the, the other observation about small churches is that even in small churches, when people radically get saved, they're going to go out and tell everybody they know about Jesus. And that's how churches should grow. We shouldn't grow because we're taking other Christians from uh, other churches. Um, but but every church's growth should be new growth. People receiving Jesus Christ and going out and telling others about what's happened to them. One of the great things that we've watched happen here at Calvary Chapel for a, a lot of years is we'll see somebody in a family get saved, and we don't even know they've got family members. The next uh, month, they've got two or three people with them. The month after that, they've got a whole row taken up with family members. Then friends from work start coming in. That's the way a church is supposed to grow. And when we understand that, then we know that we're being blessed by the Lord. So Dallas, um, if you're in a church, big or small, and you're getting fed, and you're being provided opportunities to use the gifts that God has given you to serve his body, make no mistake, Everybody who goes to church ought to be serving that church. If we truly understand that, um, um, then, then you've found a church that's being blessed by the Lord. So I hope that makes some sense to you. We're in under five minutes for this half of the program. 340-9585 or toll free 877 Here is a question from Jasmine. She says, God knows everything, so he knew there would be evil. Why did he allow the entrance of evil, and why doesn't he stop it? It's a rich question, Jasmine, but it's a hard one. We naturally have a tendency to think that um, um, if we were God, we, we wouldn't allow evil. But here's the thing you got to understand about God. God does know everything. He knew when he made Lucifer as the most beautiful of his angels. He knew that Lucifer would rebel against him, just like Jesus knew that Judas would rebel against him. And yet God didn't stop or didn't destroy that creation. Why? Because everybody, those who make the choice for good and those who make the choices for bad, everybody gets a choice. God doesn't compel anybody to love him. He asks us to. He pours out His love on us, and then He asks us to love Him in return. Now, when people say no, we're going to use our free will to exercise bad choices. And so, yes, there's evil in the world, and yes, God knows it. But let me suggest this to you. Heaven's standard of evil is everything that falls short of perfection. So, Jasmine, the reason he doesn't stop evil is because he'd have to stop it all. Now, that day's coming when he's going to do that. You can read about that day in Revelation chapter 19. But if he stopped all evil, think something for a moment. If God says, okay, I'm not going to permit any more evil, and let's just say you yelled at your husband or you yelled at your children and you said something bad or you cursed, he'd have to stop that evil too. And I know you're not thinking, well, that's just me, I can't help myself. I'm talking about evil where people get hurt. Well, God doesn't discern the difference. We're either with him and for him or against him. We're either covered by the blood or we're not. And everything, Jasmine, everything that's not covered by the blood of Jesus is evil. So it's very important that we understand that. We should be grateful God allowed choice. That's how we... No, we have great fellowship with other people because I can sit in church with somebody and I know they made the same choice to follow Jesus as I did. We have something in common, something that binds us. On the other hand, I can go to the gym uh, this morning as, as Paul and I did and there's going to be people there who want nothing to do with Jesus and you hang around and they're listening to filthy music and they're using foul language and uh, they're, they're not interested certainly in anything dealing with God. Um, but God is patient with them just as He was patient with you and as He was patient with me and He doesn't want them to die so He extends patience. I'm going to be in Isaiah 6 tomorrow night and God waited over 200 years before the judgment He promised would come. And in his patience he's going to be gracious with us as best he can so Jasmine I hope that answers the question Three four zero ninety five eighty five. I think we're just about at the end of the first half hour so um, we've got 30 minutes left in the program we would love your live calls and questions it makes for a more interesting program Uh, You can call us one more time, 340-9585 or toll free, 877-630-KSLR. This is a word to stand on for life. Lord willing, I'll be back in two minutes on the other side of the break.
1: back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
2: Welcome back to the program. I'm really going to try to get a grip on my voice here. So if my voice volume goes down a little bit, I'm trying to keep it low so it doesn't bother my throat. 340-9585. Here is a question from Matt. Uh, Pastor on does the Assembly of God ordain women as pastors, and do you recommend them? Uh, Yes, they do ordain women as pastors. Um, The Assemblies of God sort of runs toward the charismatic fringe. Um, Now, I'm I'm painting with a broad brush. There's some great uh, Assembly of God churches, uh, and some that are not so great. Some of the things that they believe, Matt, are... Are problematic. Uh, the Assemblies of God uh, is one group of churches that believes that that um, uh, speaking in tongues is the singular evidence of being filled with the Spirit, and there will be a big emphasis on getting everybody to speak in tongues. That, of course, is is, is unbalanced theology. Uh, also, the very fact that they do ordain women uh, is problematic. Um, uh, there's not much of an emphasis on teaching the Word of God. Um, it's more about emotion and hype um I think most of the assemblies, at least the ones that i 'm familiar with, they have bible studies, but the worship service is more just sort of a show and and um um i, I for those reasons I wouldn't recommend them uh on the other hand again there there are some really good uh, assembly of God pastors, just not the ones that are the most famous so that that's the best I can do with with that Matt. I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, Years ago, when we first got started here in in San Antonio, in 1995, 1996, um, there was an Assemblies of God church right across the street from the apartment complex that Paul and I lived in. And we had our meetings in our apartment and, you know, we were getting started. And I remember looking at that little assembly of God church and, and thinking, oh man, they're like a mega church. They've got so many people coming. And I, I, one day I was so discouraged I sort of was over there watching people go in and counting them. And they had like 30 people. And I thought, wow, Lord, are we ever going to get that big? Um, and I just kind of could hear the Lord chuckle and say, just hang with me. We'll be okay. So, um, embarrassing things you tell on yourself sometimes for no reason at all. Uh, Here's an important question anonymously sent in. Does believing in Jesus require us to believe that Adam and Eve were the first two humans ever on the earth? Uh, Anonymous with all of my heart, I believe that it does. Now here's why I say that. Now, Almost no one else will say that's an essential of the historic Christian faith. Old earth, young earth, uh, the, the, the method of creation, um, th- there's a trend to allowing uh, a lot of freedom in, in what you believe. But here's the problem. If Adam and Eve weren't the first two people on earth made directly by the hand of God, then the rest of our Bible is a lie. The rest of our Bible is a lie. Jesus declared that Adam was the first one. Jesus declared that God created the earth and God created mankind. And, and basically, if we don't believe that Adam and Eve were the first two people on earth, then we're casting doubt on Jesus' integrity. I'll go one step further, the book of Genesis, the first 11 chapters, if you don't believe in those chapters as literal expressions from God, then every major doctrine of the New Testament church, many of those doctrines being essentials of our faith, every one of those doctrines fall apart. If Adam wasn't the first man on earth, then there's no such thing as original sin. And if there's no such thing as original sin, then there's no such thing as a sin nature. That renders it unnecessary for Jesus to die for our sins. So I believe with all of my heart, Anonymous, that in order to have a Christian walk, a a relationship with, with our Christ, especially any kind of a fruitful relationship, you've got to believe what the Bible tells us. And it's just not honest to say, well, you know, I just disagree. We've been taught evolution is true. Maybe God used evolution or, or uh, maybe there were people that are 100 million years old or something. Um, you've got to believe in the beginning, God. And on the sixth day, 24 hour day, on the sixth day, God created his best work. And that's mankind. So I think personally, Anonymous, it's very, very important. In in fairness, I will say that um, I don't know too many other pastors who would say yes to your question. They would say, well, you know, if you don't believe it, then it's okay. But, but really, our entire faith is at stake in that issue. If there was um, a Peking men and, and Neanderthals and uh, if we evolve from lower life forms, then there's absolutely nothing in our Bibles, nothing at all in our Bibles that we can trust. That's how important it zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Nacho from our email inbox. Is John talking about the fear of not being saved, the fear of not being able to go to heaven, in 1 John 4, 8, I ask because there's many things I fear in life. I fear pain, loss of loved one, loss of financial stability for my family, the fall of our nation, etc., etc. not sure that's an important question. Um, uh, when he says perfect love casts out fear, it doesn't mean we're not going to be afraid. Jesus and, and the angels that Jesus sent all the way through the Old Testament are always saying, fear not, do not worry. Well, We still are afraid, and we're still going to worry. So uh, what John is talking about is that the fear uh, that is cast out is the fear of being judged. Because fear deals with judgment. You and I, Nacho, have been delivered from fear of judgment. Now, there's something I think more important in your question than just the, the straightforward answer to that. Uh, all of us have things in life we fear, but faith needs to be developed. Faith is the antidote for that fear. You know, if I am afraid of something, you said I fear pain. I fear pain as well. Uh, the loss of a loved one. I, I can't imagine what would happen if something happened to Paul. I, I would be beside myself. But do you see, it's in times like that where we get to put our faith to our feet. Another way of saying that is to practice what we preach. That's when our faith is tested. Do we believe God's grace is sufficient? Do we believe that Jesus is a comforter in the most painful times of our lives? He said, you fear the loss of financial stability. Do you believe that God will provide Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. Are those just Bible verses, or do we really believe them? You see, when we're dealing with fear, there's two things that we have to be really, really focused on. First, not being paralyzed by our fear. It's okay to be afraid, but we continue to walk with Jesus by faith. I know I've said this on this program many, many times, but I literally live every day in fear. Every day. I'm overwhelmed at times by the responsibility the Lord has provided for me. I'm overwhelmed by the pain in other people's life, far more far more than the pain in my own life. And in in, in those times, I have a decision to make. I'm going to let fear kind of drive me into my bedroom with the comfort around me um, or, or am I going to get up and walk with Jesus? And again, that's when faith gets tested. Um, nobody wants to be in pain. Nobody wants to lose somebody close to them. Um, you know, we've got a State of the Union speech tonight and I can tell you What they should say, although they won't, they should say the state of our union is really messed up. We're in real, real trouble because we are. And and those things cause us to be afraid. But we still keep doing what Jesus has called us to do. We do it every day. Not by might nor by power, but by His Spirit. I hope we do it in His name and for His glory. And you know, somehow we make the end of the day. Our church is infamous for financial struggling. We don't ask for money. Everything that we do here is free. Um, there's just it's just very expensive. The stress is always there. And the one thing I remember when we go through those really hard times is that every day I woke up terrified and walked through that day with Jesus. I made it to my bed at night. When I got home, Paula still loved me and Jesus was right there with us. And so if I'm afraid today, I'm going to remember that and do the same thing. So that's, not Nacho, so when we have to activate our faith. It's not faking it. Or it's not positive self-talk it's just considering everything that jesus has done and then we say okay lord i'm afraid but i'm gonna do it afraid let's walk together and he'll always always walk us through that fear but the the first part of the question it's fear of judgment fear has to do with judgment we're told good question thank you nacho Here's our next question uh, anonymously. Is it proper for women to run for office in view of the women must submit to men verses? Um, yes, anonymous it is. The only place that, that uh, God establishes uh, women need to submit is in our home. Remember, our homes belong to him and in the church of which Jesus is the head. For for better or for worse, the Lord said the churches will be led by males, by men. Uh, again, I always say this, it doesn't mean we're smarter or more spiritual. Uh, often, just the opposite is true. But it's Jesus' church, he gets to make the rules. So in the church, the leaders are men. In the home, wives, submit to your husbands as done to the Lord. There has to be a head of the household. That also means that the men understand that they're not the head of the household, that Jesus is the head of the household. So those are the submit-to-men verses. However, when somebody wants to run for an office, um, uh, gender doesn't matter. Uh, vote for the best person, the one who most closely represents your values, our godly values. And whether it's a man or a woman, um It makes no difference at all. So it is proper for women to run. Let's go to Mason, Texas, and talk with Ron on line one. Ron, thanks for calling. You're on the air.
1: I just had a quick comment. You were talking about God chuckling at you, which I absolutely (laughs) love. I I mean, that's the kind of relationship we want to have. But I go to the person's question when you were talking about the importance of Genesis it's all about relationship and when Adam and God were naming the animals can you imagine the amount of laughter that was going on when when the first <laughs> giraffe walked up and Adam told him what in the world you do run out of necks or what and that's all I got to say but I wish you would just comment on, on that deep fun relationship that you have with him
2: oh thank you Ron I appreciate that very very much you know, um, uh, my favorite animal, I, I've always been fascinated by hippopotamuses. Uh, from the time I was a, a kid, uh, hippopotamuses um, just made me laugh. And and I've often thought about what Adam um, would have thought when uh, the hippopotamus and Mrs. Hippopotamus came uh, before him to be named. Now, I personally don't think, Ron, that, that Adam and and God did it together. I think I think God gave Adam the the intellect and the free will to to make those choices and and there's a very important reason for that because what God was doing there was a method to his madness. He was creating in Adam a desire that Adam couldn't possibly know he had. I mean think about it. Adam wakes up, he's perfect, he's in a perfect environment, he walks in the cool of the garden with God and Uh, He didn't know that it wasn't good for man to be alone. In fact, he wouldn't even have been aware that he was alone. So what God did is he brought the animals in pairs, male and female, before Adam to be named. And at some point, Adam would get to thinking, wait a minute, everybody has somebody but me. Am I the only one that there's not two of? Well, that was the first inkling that Adam had that there was something better for him. And he went to bed that night. God put him into a deep sleep. He woke up the next morning and there she was. And the Bible reports his first words were uh, this is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. I think the first word he thing was wow, where did you come from? Um, but that's the relationship that that really is a picture from the very beginning of the relationship God wants and will eventually have with all of us. So it's really important we understand that everything that God does, there is a reason, and we are the beneficiaries of that reason. We are the beneficiaries of that reason. I remember Ron uh, a lot of years ago. Now, in in March next month, it will be forty nine years ago that I first laid eyes on Paula in a in a in a setting. I'd seen her before when she was much smaller. Or you went much younger, but um, I, I saw her across the gym, and believe me, at that moment, now I wasn't a Christian. I didn't know anything about Adam and Eve. Uh, I wasn't raised in church. My family didn't make me go to church. Uh, but I know how Adam felt when he saw Eve for the first time, because when I saw Paula, all I thought about was, "Wow, I got, I've got to meet this woman," and. Uh, Uh, I'm going to get her phone number. And I was on a mission. I just didn't know it was a mission from God until a lot of years later. And uh, when he put us together, um, who would have known? Who would have known? I didn't know that my life was incomplete without her. I didn't know how much fun she is. And I can tell you, Ron, and everybody else in the audience, this one thing, that Paula has taught me more about what a relationship, a godly relationship and our relationship with Jesus is supposed to be like. Paula is fun. Paula is, is um, um, she makes me ashamed of myself at times because she's um, just such an encourager. Jesus knew I needed her. Now, what's all the more remarkable to me about that is that Neither one of us were Christians at the time. And even though we took the relationship and made it sinful, God simply set his love upon us because he knew we would both become his. Paula got saved 13 years before I did. She prayed for me for 13 years. And though everybody in, the, in, in our families, the people that knew us advised her to leave me, nobody will blame me. Even my mom said that. She taught me what God setting his love upon me was all about. She taught me what Romans 8.29 was in real life. And just because Jesus asked her to stay, she did. And 13 years after she got saved, I did. And I'll tell you, Ron, we hit the ground running, me, Paula, and Jesus, every day in the now nearly 28 years. In fact, this month it is 28 years for me. So it'll be 28 years that I've been saved in in February and 41 for Paula. Thank you for the call, Ron. You're in um, northwest of Fredericksburg, I'm told. Thank you for listening and thanks for calling. 340-9585 for your live calls. Here is a question from Carlos. Um, Carlos says, Can someone take a title like Pastor or apostle by themselves with no formal recognition from a church. Um, Carlos, th- nobody should ever, under any circumstances, even if a church recognizes him, take the title of apostle. There are no more apostles in the sense that the original 12, um, Judas replaced by Matthias, uh, is an apostle. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 makes that perfectly clear. So if, if you're in a church where somebody's taking the title of apostle, then... then run the other direction um, the same thing is true with a title like pastor um, pastors are for today and obviously I that's the, the calling that I've been blessed with and um, um, yet you need to be recognized I know people that call themselves pastors and they don't have churches um, there are people that just like to draw attention to themselves so people that need to feel validated Um, uh, I know pastors who are really pastors who um, went to seminary just for the, the, the simple reason, even though they were doing the work of a pastor, because, well, people respect me more if I have a title in front of my name, Reverend Pastor or some such thing. But nobody should take a title. These are titles given only by God at the call of God. Tomorrow night, Carlos, by the way, Uh, In Isaiah chapter 6, we're going to be studying Isaiah's call. Isaiah didn't call himself. Uh, If Isaiah had a choice, he would have not answered the call. But when God called him, who will go for us? And he said, I'll go. Uh, That's a call of God. You know, when you're called to be a pastor by God, forget the apostle part of your question, Carlos, but just the pastor role. Um, it's almost like there's nothing else you can do. I know pastors who went kicking and screaming. Um, that wasn't the case with me. I didn't know what a pastor did. So when God called me to be a pastor, I just said, well, Lord, you're in charge, so if that's what you want me to do, I'll do it. But there's a lot of work that went involved. And I went to Bible college, and I studied, um, um, ferociously studied. And uh, in in the situation... Um, when you're really called by God, then you're going to devour the, the the Bible. You're going to get as close to the Lord as you possibly can. And you're going to make sure you're walking in the light with Jesus because he is the light. So if somebody in a church that you're going to uh, has decided to call themselves pastor and there's no recognition from a church, there's no covering from a church, uh, then probably that's not a good thing. Um, this is something we should take very, very seriously. Even James, the Lord's half-brother, said that, that uh, if anyone desires to teach, he ought to be really, really careful, slow, to be sure, because we stand a stricter judgment, not a stricter judgment for salvation, but a stricter judgment. Too much is given, much is required, and we're going to be judged very strictly but the things that we do, the, the stewardship of our of our ministry, so it's very very important that uh, that uh, there is formal recognition from a church. Again, I'm not talking about being called a reverend or anything silly like that, but just understand that a pastor is a shepherd of God's word, a shepherd for God's people, and uh, it, it's it's a calling to be taken seriously, not lightly at all. Anybody trying to pastor. So their ego gets pumped up. It's going to be in real, real trouble. Anybody who wants to be called by a title? You know, uh, uh, people call me Pastor On. There's a lot of people, uh, because of my age, they call me uh, um, Dad or Pop or Papa um, uh, here at the church. Uh, I don't care what people call me. It's not the issue. I'll let the relationships develop as they they develop. I don't like being called Pastor Arbaugh. pastor Ron is is uh, just sort of suits me more uh, but I take being called a pastor as a title of honor and I am thrilled so Carlos I hope that answers your question time for one more question today this is from Samantha she asks since Jesus spoke Aramaic should we get an Aramaic translation of the Bible for more accuracy um, actually Jesus didn't speak Aramaic we would say more accurately, he spoke the, the language of the Palestinian peoples around. Uh, if you want to call it Arabic or Aramaic, I guess that's just splitting hairs. Uh, but but remember, um, the language Jesus spoke has nothing to do with the language the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible in. The Bible the New Testament was written in Greek. We do have two chapters, actually two and a little bit more than... Then a, a, a two, two and a third, or two and a quarter chapters, in our Bibles, written in Aramaic. Um, Daniel chapter four and five, and the first part of Daniel chapter six. Um, those those chapters are written in Aramaic. But what we want to focus on, Samantha, is the language the Bible was written in. The Old Testament, by and large, was written in Hebrew. Uh, the New Testament was written in Common Koine Greek. And the inspired Words are in the language that they're written in. So Aramaic won't help you at all. Hope that helps. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. I apologize again for my voice and coughing, but I think I'm okay now. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. I'll be back tomorrow on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you at 4 o'clock. God bless.